uh, last week I spent um, a little bit of time on the idea of the fact that God is jealous revealed to us here in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2. And uh, so we, uh, we will cover uh, and f- actually finish the book. And not to be alarmed, we are not going to go verse by verse throughout the book. The structure of Nahum, if you had the opportunity to read it this week, it's only three chapters. The first chapter is the uh, interweaving of the dual themes of consolation and at the same time, judgment. Chapters 2 and 3 essentially is a description of the destruction of the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and the destruction of their people and the king. We will see this morning that God's judgment is whole, it is full, it is final, it is comprehensive. And the question that Nahum weaves throughout his book is uh, dealing with those dual themes of, on the one hand, consolation, which is the translation of his name in Hebrew, Naham, to console or to comfort, on the one hand, and on the other hand, to experience the judgment of God. So just as a quick reminder, Nahum's ministry was directed toward the Assyrian Empire, it was about a hundred, at least a hundred years after the ministry of Jonah. Somewhere, scholars believe around 660 to 612 BC, 612 being the end date because that was the year that the Assyrian Empire uh, was uh, fallen uh, by the Babylonians and by the Medes. The generation, if you were here during the ministry of uh, Jonah, when Bill, Pastor Bill went through the book of Jonah, that generation under the ministry of, of Jonah in Nineveh that repented was long gone. And the city returned to its evil ways, its violent ways, within 40 years after Jonah's ministry. They sacked the northern empire of uh, Israel and then turned their sights on the brothers to the south, uh, namely the land of Judah. And so God intervenes through the prophet Nahum and says, essentially, enough. Now, what Nahum does so beautifully is he begins with the description of the character of God, as if to indicate to us that God, by virtue of who He is, is qualified, if I could use that word, to be the judge. And so Nahum presents a beautiful theology of what God is like. He describes God as one who is inflexible in His justice, inexhaustible in his power, infinite in his mercy, and incomparable in his goodness. So, with that in mind, let's put our seatbelts on. Uh, In the name of Jesus, we will fly. An oracle, or quite literally a burden concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So Nahum begins with two verses that um, seem to be in contrast one to another. First, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Then, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He is one who is angry and wrathful and will take vengeance upon those that threaten the ones he loves. So the question is, which is it? The answer is, God is both. Depending on which side of the ledger of judgment you find yourself. On the one hand, he is a God full of mercy and loving kindness and forgiveness. On the other hand, he is a God of justice and power. During the height of the Civil War, the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was once asked, do you think that God is on our side? His response was, my greatest concern is to be on God's side. That's the question that we should be asking, and hopefully the answer that we are wrestling with and can determine which side of the judgment of ledger we find ourselves. We continue reading in Nahum, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum uses beautiful poetic language to describe the power and the majesty of God in, in um, figures of poetic form. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Again, in beautiful poetic language, Nahum describes the judgment of God. First of all, calling upon the witness of creation, describing uh, the clouds as the dust of his feet. And then it seems that Nahum returns to Genesis chapter 1, the account of God's creation. And in verses 4 to 6, it seems to be that Nahum is presenting, as it were, a reversal of creation. Instead of the mountains being created in Genesis 1, here the mountains quake and crumble before his anger and fall to the earth like a series of small rocks. Instead of the seas being separated from the dry land in Genesis chapter 1, 
Uh, Nahum indicates here that uh, the seas, as it were, overstepped their boundaries and that God needed to intervene and separate again the sea from the dry land. That's what's happening to the one who refuses to recognize Yahweh and what belongs to him. In a very descriptive language, Assyria is described as their world is crashing down upon them. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heart of his anger? So God, we see, is not only described in his power as inexhaustible, but it's also irresistible. Assyria's world is crashing in on them, and that is what it will appear to be like on that day of judgment. Yet, in the very next verse, once again, Nahum interweaves those beautiful dual themes of judgment on the one hand, and yet comfort and consolation on the other. For we see in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. As we were singing that first song this morning, I think there was a line that that's said that he is the anchor in our waves. You know, life sometimes is full with difficulties and disappointments and, quite frankly, pain. As one of my Czech pastor friends says, life is tough, and then you die. Well, this is why we need to remember what Nahum reminds his uh, Judean readers of, the fact that God is good. And it seems that one of the greatest struggles that we as the people of God have as we go through life and the difficulties of life and the, and the trials and the tumult, sometimes we find ourselves as we you know, listen to the news and as we hear about tragedies and difficulties of, of every sort, and sometimes we, we are tempted to question in our minds the goodness of God. It is certainly one of the uh, critiques uh, by those who are certainly critics of the Bible and critics of God. Sometimes they'll say, if God is good, why would he allow this to happen? Sometimes they reach the conclusion that God must not be good. Other times they reach the conclusion, okay, if God is good, then he does not have the power to do anything about that situation. Well, one way or another, the character of God is slandered. I find it interesting that once again, if Nahum alludes to Genesis chapter 1 and creation, we are reminded of the fact that seven times in Genesis 1, God declares his creation to be good. I find it interesting, too, that the first temptation that befalls that first couple, Adam and Eve, from the, the serpent was one that questioned the goodness of God. Has God said 
of any tree of the fruit of the garden you may eat? The answer being, of every tree we can eat except this one. And that was the goodness of God threatened by the serpent. How could God be good if he withholds something from you? So the goodness of God, Nahum reminds his readers as, as they witness the, the target of the Judean cities. And we need to be reminded of the fact that Assyria already began its attack on Judah and already began to attack some of the, the cities, although they did not conquer Jerusalem by God's divine intervention, yet some of the other towns and cities were already under Assyrian control. So needless to say, there, there was anxiety of the highest sort, and yet Nahum now reminds them that the Lord is good. As you read through the Psalms, you see that this is a prominent reminder by the psalmist of the goodness of God. The Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. The goodness of God exists continuously. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And we could go on and on. And didn't Jesus describe himself as the good shepherd? So as we go through life and as we encounter the difficulties and the trials of life, we need to remind ourselves that God is good. And because he is good, he is the anchor through our waves. He is the, as Nahum says in verse 7, the stronghold in the day of trouble. Well, let's now read on, and once again, we're, we're going to see a series of verses dealing with his judgment and his power upon the Assyrian nation. I'm going to read from a larger section now from verse 8, verse eight through uh, verse uh, 14. Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. As, as you're listening to these verses, hear the completeness and the comprehensiveness of God's judgment. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are all at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off all the carved image and the metal image." 
I will make your grave for you are vile. Interesting there, too, that, that God indicates that he will invade their temples and that he will undo their gods. Uh, just reminding you, as I think I shared last week, that when a nation conquered another nation, the understanding was that the conquering nation's God were superior and more powerful. And God made it be clear that he was merely using the Assyrian nation as a tool to, in judgment of his disobedient people, Israel. But God, in a sense, made it clear, you did not capture me. And to make that point a clear and finalized point, he, Nahum indicates that not only will the nation fall, but its idols will be destroyed. Listen to some of the uh, other verses that speak again of the completeness of God's judgment. For you never again, for, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Chapter 1, verse 15. Now we get into some of the verses in the second and third chapter where God through Nahum, outlines the complete devastation of the city and the Assyrian Empire. Chapter 2, verse 13, Never again will you plunder conquered nations. The voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more. Then in chapter 3, All who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. Where are the mourners? Does anyone regret your destruction? And then a little bit later again in chapter 3, there is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. <clears throat> it's interesting that history has revealed many times the, the rise and then fall, and then the rise again of an empire. Uh, sometimes the Babylonian Empire, when it's uh, described in the conquering of Judah in the year 586, sometimes historians refer to it as the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the new Babylonian Empire that rose again. But here Nahum uh, speaks God's message and says basically this, there will be no Neo-Assyrian Empire. One of the first to uncover what was believed to have been the remains of Nineveh was the French uh, scientist and, and world traveler, a man by the name of Jean Thuvenot, in the 17th century when surveying what was believed to have been the remains of Nineveh, wrote this in his journal, there is nothing left of it but some small hills which must have been its foundation. Now, Nahum begins to give some particulars concerning the fall of the empire. And uh, it's, uh, I think, rather fascinating. I wanted to share a couple particulars with you that we see in Nahum and that we see referenced by a Greek historian by the name of Diodorus Siculus. Now, I will say, as uh, 
kind of a qualifier that some historians today question some of his historical accounts. However, some of his statements here, I think, uh, relate to us, in particular in our survey here through the book of Nahum. First, he refers to the Ninevites as those who were drunk. In chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, like drunkards, Nahum does, as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. And then in chapter 3, in verse 11, uh, Nahum writes, you also will be drunken, and you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. Now, there are some scholars that uh, attribute this kind of language to Nahum's uh, poetic style. But there is some reason to believe that this could be taken literally. The Greek historian that I referred to, Diodorus Siculus, recorded that after repeatedly repelling the attacking army of the Pede, of the Medes and the Babylonians, that the Assyrian king gave much wine in arrogance to his soldiers. When the enemy regathered and attacked by night, the Assyrians were drunk and defeated. These are the words of that uh, Greek historian commenting on the fall of Nineveh. And then there's a, another dimension to the fall of Nineveh that uh, I, I find uh, to be quite fascinating. Uh, in going back to uh, the first chapter in the eighth verse, uh, there's a reference uh, to the Tigris River, not specifically mentioning the Tigris, but to the river overflowing its banks. In chapter 1 and verse 8, for example, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pour his enemies into darkness. And then in the second chapter, once again, he refers to this flood. Uh, in chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, the river gates are opened the palace melts away. And then in verse 8, he says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Once again, reading from the account of this uh, Greek historian, he writes, preserved a, he preserved a tradition that explained the fall of the city. Namely, that heavy rains caused the Tigris River to overflow and flood part of Nineveh, undermining their, their protective walls. There was such arrogance among the people that it was believed historically that an oracle had been passed down to the Ninevite people from their ancestors that said there would be no way that they would be attacked in the great city of Nineveh unless, and this is the words of in the oracle of these ancestors, unless the walls became their enemy. Interesting. Figurative language or literal? I think there's reason to believe that it very well could have been literal. 
the reports from these, this Greek historian indicated that there was prolonged rainfall, and as a result, a part of the wall was undermined. And that was the way of access into the great city where they found the Ninevite soldiers drunk with wine. Interesting, too, that 75 years before, the prophet Isaiah had this to say concerning the future judgment of Assyria. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. And yet in the midst of it all, once again, we see hope and comfort and consolation. In chapter 2 and verse 2, even though the destroyer has destroyed, the Lord will restore its honor, speaking of Judah. God's promises to restore the remnant and honor his faithful will be the promise to his covenant people. And as we Consider in the New Testament, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, once again, Paul refers back to Israel's past, present, and future, indicating that there is a future hope for the promises that God made to the nation. Nahum expresses the reality that God is inflexible in his justice, inexhaustible in his power, infinite in his mercy, and incomparable in his goodness. And the question for us is to determine which side of the ledger of judgment we find ourselves. Just look, Assyria on the one hand and Judah on the other hand. Look at the contrasts that Nahum presents to us. On the one hand, there's judgment. On the other hand, there's mercy. On the one hand, there's fear. On the other hand, there's security. For Assyria, there was trusting in their own might. For Judah, they were trusting in God. On the one hand, there was anger expressed. On the other hand, there was jealousy out of love. For Assyria, there was hopelessness. And for those who made God their stronghold, there was hope. So I conclude by going back to chapter 1 again and verse 15 with this last verse. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What a contrast in messengers. On the one hand, in chapter 2 and verse 13, Nahum speaks for the Lord in saying, your messengers will never be listened to again. And I think that that was a reference uh, of 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 when the messenger of Assyria was sent to the walls of Jerusalem and they're speaking in the Hebrew language. And again, this is contained in 2 Kings 18 and 19. They're speaking in the Hebrew language. This messenger cast insults 
upon the Jewish people, but more importantly, insults upon their God. And so in chapter 2, verse 13, Nahum says, Never again will your messengers and counselors of evil have opportunity. But yet in contrast, look at the beautiful messengers that we see from God. Behold, one will come over the mountains bearing good news. And Nahum here borrows this language from Isaiah and then later, the Apostle Paul borrows this analogy both from Isaiah and Nahum. And in Romans 10:15, the Apostle Paul writes, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And it's good news indeed, because God sent him who knew no sin and made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And joyfully, Paul could write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God is jealous for us. He is jealous for the, that which belongs to him. And later in that chapter, Paul writes that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So the message of Nahum, though it's a short book, is a beautiful reminder of two different themes being woven beautifully together with a line drawn down the middle. And we ask ourselves, which side of that line of judgment do we find ourselves? Are we uh, arrogantly going through life on our own, uh, either shaking our fist or shrugging our shoulders in indifference? Or is he, in fact, the anchor through the storm? Is he, in fact, the stronghold through times of difficulty? where we recognize, even through those times, that God is good, that God is merciful, and that we could be secure in his everlasting love. If you're here this morning and you've never asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, he died so that we would no longer face condemnation, that we could be elevated, transferred, as Paul says in Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of whose we are and what he's done. And what a beautiful remembrance that no one, that nothing can separate us from that love because we belong to him, and God is jealous for that which belongs to him.